Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Chris. Well, we have been in the book of Matthew the last few weeks, uh, looking to see where God's hand is at work in unlikely places. And as we come to this text, it's a familiar text. Many of you have heard it before, but as we come to this text, there is a reality that the most significant event in human history after creation happened through the lives of a humble man and woman who were waiting to be married. So uh, before we jump into the text, uh, let's pray. Father, would you open our eyes afresh to see amazing truth and see your hand at work in the lives of Mary and Joseph. And Lord, would we in turn see you at work in our lives. And we thank you, God, for coming, for living among us, and for sending your son for us. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Oftentimes when we come to this text, we will we'll read it. Maybe you'll read it with your family on Christmas Eve. You know, you sit down and you got some Christmas cookies and some cocoa or coffee or, or whatever it is that you'll be drinking and you'll, you'll read the story because the story sounds really great, right? It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. What a great, just beginning to just a wonderful story. Now, as we jump into the text, it's helpful to understand what would the original hearers have experienced if they were sitting down reading this, which they probably didn't read it. Most of the time, it was spoken. But for them, you know, if they're sitting down, you know, with their Christmas cookies, you know, eating them, you know, with their cocoa, and and they start, you know, hearing, you know, this, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now that is the point at which they start choking on the cookie or the hot cocoa or it comes out through their nose because it's not what they expect to happen. Now, 
We learned in the last few weeks about the Christ. When they would have heard in the genealogy, their ears would have perked up because the Christ was coming, the one that they were anticipating coming. So Matthew makes it clear that there's a clear line from Abraham to David to Jesus. And so they're, they're leaning in, wanting to know this story, and then the story starts to unfold, and it just doesn't unfold the way that they anticipate this king coming in this powerful way. And even as we read it in Western culture, we can miss some nuances of what's going on in the lives of Mary and Joseph as Jesus comes on the scene. Clearly, this text is primarily centered around verse 23, the coming of Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we'll talk about that also on Christmas Eve. But I want us to see kind of like what was this experience that Mary and Joseph had? What was going on for them? And try to enter into their world. Well, as we look at the text, it says, when his mother, meaning Jesus' mother, Mary, had been betrothed. Let's stop right there. Because when we hear the word betrothed, oftentimes we can think about engagement, right? We know some people maybe now they're engaged, they're engaged, they're, they're in that kind of like happy season. Nothing can go wrong. No, nothing go wrong between them. And they're, they're, they're frantically planning for a wedding. It's a, it's a happy time. But we've also heard like there are times when engagements happen and you, you all have seen different movies or maybe personally seen, you know, someone like leave at the altar because they're just like, ah, I, I don't know I can do it. The pressure is too much. And really in American culture and engagement, you can't just kind of like walk away, toss the ring back. And there's really not too many repercussions other than all the money you spent on the wedding expenses. But in this culture, betrothed was not our American version of engagement. It's helpful to understand how, how that even worked because it wasn't like a uh, guy sees girl, uh, they date, and then he asks her to marry him. No, uh, guy's dad and girl's dad uh, are hanging out uh, when girl is young and guy is young, and they make an agreement, our children are going to be married, you know, arranged marriages. Okay, that was the norm, and there's no reason for us to believe that that wasn't true for Mary and Joseph. Now, as a dad, I'm kind of a fan of that idea um, myself, but uh, I know that's probably not going to be a reality for us. But anyway, so, so there was this arrangement that would happen. So that's kind of the engagement. Hey, uh, uh, my son's going to be married to your daughter. Then time goes on, and uh, at, at a later time when they're older, oftentimes when the gal was kind of in the teenage years and sometimes the the young man was a bit older than that, they would be betrothed. And at the, the time of being betrothed, it was as if they were getting married, like what we understand being married. Now before, and we know that they were considered that way because if you look in the text of verse 19, it says it references and her husband. So before they get married, he's referenced as her husband. That's how serious betrothal was. They were husband and wife. Now, two big differences between our understanding of betrothal and marriage for us. So the covenant, the commitment, the loyalty, everything is there. Uh, but they, they don't live together and they don't sleep together for a year. But they are, for all intents and purposes, they are married. The marriage license has been signed. So that's how significant betrothal 
was. And to break that, the only way that you would break a betrothal would have been kind of walking through the financial and social repercussions of like what we understand divorce to be. It's hard. Now before betrothal, if the woman was like not good with the whole idea, it's impossible that she could get out of it. Or if the man discovered that uh, the, the potential wife was going to, was unfaithful, he could back out of it and there weren't the repercussions. But once they were betrothed, it was like they're married. And then we read on. So they're betrothed. So before they came together, she was found to be with child and her husband, Joseph, being a just man. So before we get into that character, so we must kind of enter into their world. Mary, so what's going on in Mary's mind? Because we jump pretty quickly from 18 to 19 for us. I mean, we're moving on and we're getting on with Christmas dinner. But in their world, you know, Mary... She's not really in a place of confusion because we know from the gospel of Luke that an angel of the Lord came to her and told her that she was going to be with child and that the Holy Spirit was going to come and she was going to get pregnant and have the Christ in her. So she's not surprised by this pregnancy. But what she would be experiencing is the reality of what a woman experiences in her culture of being pregnant out of wedlock the weakness that that would have brought, the shame that that would have brought. I mean, as we talked about before, you know, a woman couldn't, her testimony wasn't admissible in court, so she couldn't probably even defend herself to say that she was innocent, not that anyone would believe her, that an angel came to her and told her that. They'd be like, sure, whatever. So Mary finds herself in a complete, absolute weakness and dependence. And then Joseph, step into his shoes for a minute. We don't really know the details, we don't get all the details, but at some point in time, he finds out his betrothed is pregnant. We don't know if her parents came to him and said, oh, you know, she's not been feeling well. We sent her to stay with her cousin for a few months. She'll be back. We don't know if he, she sent him a note. We don't know if when she came back from that, she walks in the door and, and he sees a baby bump knowing full well that that's not his baby bump. You've seen the baby bump, right, around these parts. We're excited about that. We're anticipating babies are coming. That's an exciting time. It's not an exciting time when your betrothed has a bump and you had nothing to do with it. But think about what might have been going on in his heart. Like what? Did he... Did he try to get up in the morning and roll out of his bed and fall on the floor and try to find strength to get up every day? Did, did he, was he tempted to just rage in anger at what had happened? He's in a place where he is going to be affected his reputation is going to be affected. If he were to marry this woman, he's, his reputation is going to be affected because she's pregnant before they're supposed to be together. So people are going to assume it's his if he marries her. If he doesn't marry her, he's got the shame of that, and potentially her life could be on the line. Think of that, the weight that he would experience, and he's just a carpenter. This is not some high official who's got lots of wealth. He's a carpenter. 
already thought of as lowly. That's the world that he's in. So how does Joseph respond? Joseph responds with with character that if we pause and really consider his response in light of his understanding of the events, his understanding of the events are, are not what we know them to be because we know the end of the story already. But in in light of his understanding of events, he displays a character that is really unrivaled. It says, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. I mean, his reputation was on the line. He could have publicly humiliated her in front of others to be like, no, this is not mine. I distance myself. You do with her what you want. He could have done that but that's not what he does. He, he, he must have been before God and known Micah 6.8, which says, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? He doesn't respond out of emotion. He responds out of conviction. He's resolved to do it. So he, he has thought through this. He has prayed through it. He's likely sought the scriptures to understand what's the right thing for me to do. How should I carry this out? And he had resolved. So he, he made a decision, but then we read in verse 20, he's, he's not entirely sure of that decision. I don't know if you've been in that because it says, but as he considered these things. So he had already resolved to do it, but then he's still considering it. Kind of you, you've experienced that. Yeah, yeah, I know the right thing I need to do right now. Where I've thought through this, this is what I'm gonna do, but then just right before you get to go doing it, you're kind of like, I'm not sure. There's this hesitancy. There's this something that's kind of holding you back that you can't seem to push forward. You could kind of push through it, but you don't push through it. And so then it seems he sleeps on it. And... But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. And it goes on. God clearly comes through as he waits to hear from God He doesn't press forward because he could have pressed forward. God clearly speaks. And I know some of you are thinking, yeah, you know, when I'm trying to make a decision, I really wish God would send an angel. That would be a whole lot easier. I'm putting my hand up. Yes. But this is not the common way, even in Scripture, that God gives clarity to people. Yes, there's times God sends an angel, but oftentimes it comes from times of prayer. We don't even have a record of Jesus like praying and an angel of the Lord coming going, this is what you need to do. No, he had spent time with the Father. So we do and we can and God will bring clarity to us. So God brought clarity to him and he makes it clear, makes God's will clear and he basically says, it's gonna be hard for you. You're gonna be mocked. You're going to be looked down upon. You'll probably be shamed by other people. It's going to cost you to do this. Because it's not just like that the angel makes it clear. The angel makes something clear that's going to cost Joseph. 
He's seen an angel. She's seen an angel. They're pretty certain about what God is doing. Everybody else is going to think they live in Michigan and marijuana is just free to have whenever you want. That's what they're going to think of them. And so even though he's heard from the Lord, he knows that's what he's going to face. But this is what Joseph does in the face of what, what could come. When Joseph woke from his sleep in verse 24, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So he responds. If Joseph were in our midst, we would likely, we would likely say that's a man of impeccable character. We wouldn't even be thinking about, is he gifted in any way? Like his character would just scream out at you. So what can we learn from the details of this story? Well, the first one is this. We learn God works in our weakness. God works in our weakness. Our culture, even religious circles, they, they champion people who can pull it all together. Movies are made about the people that can pull it all together and they make it happen. They come from a horrible spot and they just figure it out and then they become victorious. They, become, they win a war or they make a bunch of money or they establish you know, a mission or all the, like these are the people that we need to be. We need to be, be like them. Pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and get it done. The Bible paints a different picture. Mary, facing overwhelming odds. She's heard clearly from the Lord. She knows what she's called to do. She feels blessed by God, but she is in a place of absolute vulnerability. Being a woman in that culture was vulnerable enough. Being a pregnant woman without a husband would have brought shame and scorn, maybe, maybe even statements of being easy or sleazy would come her way. But we see God working in her weakness, and he preserves her. He protects her. He guides her. He directs her. She's in an absolute spot of weakness. And yet, we know she makes it to the end of the gospel. God works in weakness. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Where do you find yourself in a place of weakness? Where do you find yourself in a place of weakness? If you're willing to admit that you're weak in that place, are you trying to kind of cover that up or are you just kind of trying to strive through that? If I learn enough, if I do enough more, if I tell other people enough, they won't see that this is a weakness. I'm going to turn this into a strength because I read a leadership book. You need to turn your weaknesses into your strengths. That's what I'm going to do. Or have you embraced your weakness because you know that when 
you are weak, then you will see God work. 2 Corinthians 12.10, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's not like the first line in um, the last three leadership books that, that I pulled off the secular bookshelf. When I am weak, then I am strong. Both Mary and Joseph find themselves in a place of weakness. Again, Joseph's a humble carpenter. Jesus came for those who are weak and are willing to admit that they're weak. And Jesus saves us not by the things that we do, but through what he does. Through what he does. The disciples are constantly asking. They're expecting Jesus to kind of be at this place of authority and leadership and usher in this kingdom that he's going to be the ruler. Hey, can I sit, you know, can we sit at your right and your left? In fact, I'm going to send our mom to ask that question, see if we can sit on your right and your left, because we just can't wait. And he's like, guys, you, you don't get it. I am going to become weak. I'm going to walk to the cross. When I, when I spoke, this world came into existence, but I'm going to keep my mouth shut and I'm going to go to the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. God works through weakness. Paul understood this. When he talked about his ministry, we think about how great Paul was, all these Letters that we've read by him and all these crazy things that happened to him, but this was kind of his perspective. And I, when I came to you, brothers, in 1 Corinthians 2, I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God in lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. In weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. When we find ourselves in a place of weakness, it's when God's strength is most clearly seen. And God will work, and he does work in our weakness when we embrace our weakness. Now, to be honest, I think Mary and Joseph, they weren't having an opportunity to embrace their weakness. It was just there. They had to cast themselves on the Lord. Where in this season of time can you cast yourself on the Lord and trust him to work? And sometimes he walks us through things that are hard because he wants to use us. Commentator Sinclair Ferguson said this phrase. He said, the man God uses, he first bruises. I mean, God used Joseph to lead Mary. They go into Bethlehem. They have a child, and he's got to raise Jesus early on. We don't learn anything else about him. God certainly uses him to do something quite significant, I think, being the earthly dad of the king of kings. God uses it. God uses him after having to walk through the brokenness of what he had to walk through. And oftentimes we're brought low 
so that God will use us. And I've been guilty of being like, I'm just trying to make excuses for that. I'm learning. No, that's been for my good. And even some of that weakness is because of things that I've done. But I, I know God will work because God's shown himself to work in weakness. How are you going to cast yourself on the Lord because God is going to use your weakness? Another thing we learn is that God invites us to continually be in his presence. It's not that God spoke, but as we look at the life of Joseph, he, he responds in a way that just doesn't compute for me. If I'm in his shoes, before I have this encounter with the angel, there's just different things that are going through my mind. I don't know what it's like for, to be in that situation, but I know what it's like when, when I've perceived that someone has, has wronged me in some way. I want justice right away. In fact, I'm going to do it right now. In fact, I'm going to get out my phone and I'm going to text something that I'm going to regret later, but I'm just going to blow that right off. Or you know what? You know, it's okay if they don't realize that the air's gone in their tires because they just, some justice needs to happen right now. That's where my heart's going to go. But Joseph's heart doesn't go there. Why doesn't his heart go there? I think his heart didn't go there because he responded by what I call bleeding the Bible. And the only way that happens is if you spend time in his presence. Because I think God invites us to be in awe of him because Joseph was in awe of him. Because Joseph, in the midst of facing the biggest black hole of his life, rejection, betrayal, shame, possible loss of influence and wealth. And how does he respond? He responds with grace and poise. Why? How is that possible? I think it's because his life was fixed on one point, and that was he feared God. He, he feared God. He was a just man. And some of the nuances there, he's a righteous man. And the fear of God is often misunderstood by Christians because when we hear the word fear, we kind of automatically assume like curled up in a ball in a corner because we're hiding because someone's going to just come punish us. But no, he had a healthy reverence for God and his word. Isaiah 66, 2 says, which would have been in his Bible, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He is living with the awareness of God's presence, of, of God's word. Because even doing what he did wouldn't have been the impulse of most of his peers. But he wasn't concerned about his peers. He was concerned about his God. And even things that we have in our life that we use to, to keep us from drawing our heart away from God are, are really not to be used to restrain us as much as point us back to God. 
For example, maybe you, you have some software on your electronic devices to keep you potentially from accidentally looking at things or intentionally looking at things that you know wouldn't be pleasing to God. Now, we can look at some of those things as like this seat belt that's just trying to keep us in the seat because all we're trying to do is get out of the seat and it's trying to keep us in the seat. But the reality is, is those kinds of things are just simply supposed to be there to remind us of one thing. We live in the presence of God. That's there to remind me, Jamie, you live in the presence of God, not because there's an all-seeing eye that's just waiting to just be like, ah, gotcha. No, there's a God who's loving and kind and pursues and is leaning in, and he cares, cares enough about a guy who isn't really sure. He has studied his word, not really sure what he should do. Well, I'm going to just make it clear for him. That's the kind of God that Joseph knew, the kind of God that we have who would send his son in the flesh. And not only do we live before his presence, we can come into his presence. Because Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So let's draw near. Because he came, we can draw near. There's a few other things briefly, you know, as we're in God's presence, God, God directs us in the way that we go, even when we aren't sure of the answer. Like we talked about, Joseph was like, ah, I, I'm, I'm clear about this, but I'm not sure about this. I mean, we want to be, we want to take pause when that happens. When there's not a peace in your heart, take pause. Have an interaction with someone recently who's like, yeah, I want to go do this. And I'm like, well, is, is that what you were thinking before, or is that just kind of coming out of like emotion right now, and they're like, no, I really don't want to do this. <laughs> they're going back and forth, and I'm like, hey, I, I think you should sleep on it, and it's okay if you need to sleep on it a number of nights in a row, because, because the word encourages when we're anxious about something to, to go to him in prayer, to not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So if you're faced with difficult decisions, yeah, sometimes it's not clear, but other times it will be super clear, but sometimes it'll be clear, we'll make a decision, and then we'll be kind of like, wait a minute, we did all this study, we know for sure this is what we're supposed to do. But then the Lord wants us to hit the pause button, and that's okay, because God is God and we're not. And if we walk things out in his timing, something amazing could happen. Because Joseph could have been like, yep, we're done. But that didn't happen. You don't know what God is going to do in, in that waiting. And we could go in uh, to how to make decisions. We could talk about that some other time. But that intimacy also with God paved the way for Joseph to be obedient. It paved the way for Joseph to be obedient. Joseph obeyed God because he had an, had an encounter with one of his agents. He had an encounter with God. Our obedience isn't supposed to be this drudgery, like, oh, God's asked me to do something. Oh, I want to obey God because that's the right Christian response. I want to go wherever God you asked me to go. And then small group are like, I hope he doesn't send me to Africa. I don't want to go to Africa. I don't want to go 
there. I don't, I don't want to go to that person over there because they're crotchety and grumpy and I really don't want to deal with them. I don't want to call that family member because I know if I call them, I'm just going to get an earful. Like we can be like, I don't want to do things. But when we are abiding in Christ, when we are pressing into a deeper intimacy with him, it's not drudgery. We're like, yeah, it's going to be hard, but, but he's going to be with me. He's going to be with me. I mean, in Joseph's case, he literally was going to be with him. The son of God was in the womb of his wife. But for us, the spirit of God is with us. If you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, the spirit of God has come to dwell in you and fill you and to be your helper. So as you have intimacy with the Father, see, like, oh, yeah, when he asks you to do something that's hard, well, yep, he's already gone before you because he's prepared those good works for me, and he's promised that he will be with me, and I just love being with him, so why wouldn't I want to go where he's going to be? That's a totally different way to look at obeying what God calls us to do. But thirdly, we, we learn that God brings together justice and mercy by coming to live among us. That's Joseph's conundrum in, in verse 19. So as he comes to 19, he's got a wife who's pregnant that's pregnant not by him, and so there's a need for justice to happen, but wait, God is a God of mercy. So how do I work this out? Justice and mercy. And we kind of fight about that in our culture all the time. I'm not going to get into politics, but a lot of times there's people on the justice side. It needs to be clear. Boom. It's got to be done. And some of us feel this way. And some of us kind of parent this way sometimes. We've got to go to the rules. There's punishment that needs to happen. But then we're kind of aware. No, like God is a God of mercy. And he's come to forgive us of our sins. And we've experienced mercy. So I need to extend that mercy. And certainly, if you swing the pendulum far one way, or if you swing the pendulum far the other way, it, it's not helpful. But the only way that you truly bring those two things together is in Christ. Is in Christ. Because Jesus came. He left his rightful place in heaven. And he came and he lived among us. That's why his name is called Emmanuel. God with us. And the angel specifically said, call his name Jesus, because he will save us from our sins. That's what Jesus means. The Lord saves. Friends, we can't save ourselves. If you're someone who's never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, or if you're interacting with someone who hasn't trusted in Christ, the answer is that, well, you need to do a bunch of things first and get everything in line, and then you can become a Christian. And sometimes people are hindered from even coming into joining a fellowship like this on a Sunday morning because they're like, those people have it together. I don't have it together. I can't get in there. And really what they need to know is we don't have it together, right? If we're honest, we do not have it together. You don't have to have it together because Jesus had it together. He came and he lived perfectly. He came, he came and he lived among us. He experienced what we experienced. He came the ultimate weakness of coming as 
a child, as an infant child. You've seen them some around here this morning, I think. They're pretty weak. They're pretty needy. The God of the universe who spoke, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, empties himself and and comes and lives among us. And so he, he understands us. He understands what the weakness looks like. He understands what the weakness feels like. And he understands that when you relate to your heavenly father, there's, there's grace to do whatever he calls you to do. Because Jesus was faced with something we'll never have to be faced with. He looked in the eyes of the cross. And he didn't want to go there, but he said, not my will, but yours be done. Because he had such intimacy with the Father, he was willing to do that. And Christ, who came, wants you to come to him. He wants you to come to him this morning. In your weakness, regardless of how you feel about your relationship with the Lord right now. You may be like, yeah, I really want to to abide in Christ more, but that's not going so well. No. Christ wants us to come because it's not about your effort, because He already came. He's already come. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.